0: We are continuing to move through the book of Philippians together this morning, and I'd encourage you, if you brought your own Bible or have the Bibles there in front of you in the pews, to turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's going to be our text for today's uh, teaching time. And the idea that we'll be thinking about this this whole of January and February, we're thinking about the, the community that the church represents, and what it means for us to share our lives together, what it means to, to be changed by the identity of who Jesus is in and through us as a community. Today we'll be thinking about what it, what it means for this community to have the mind of Jesus Christ, his attitude, his, his way of seeing life, community, and relationship. This past week, some of you may have noticed on your calendars, or maybe if you looked uh, at the news, the national, international news, that billions of people this past week were celebrating the Chinese New Year. Not just in China, but really across the world, throughout East Asia, and and anywhere that that sort of the Chinese people have uh, emigrated or settled. If you've ever seen it, In person, if you've ever lived in some of those areas, you know that people will travel from thousands of miles away to get home for the Chinese New Year. They'll take trains and planes and buses, sometimes for days at a time, to get back to their hometown. And once they're all assembled, one of the highlights of Chinese New Year are the banquets that that follow with family and friends in their hometown. There's eating, there's fireworks, the the whole week is this giant celebration, again with with family and community and and the connection that binds them really at the the center of what's being celebrated. And at every uh, one of these banquets or feasts, there is always a time where those seated around the table uh, take time to honor one another through toasting, through raising their glass and saying a few words, and then before the the toast is complete, you're meant to clink your glass together with everyone else there, you know, at least within arm's reach at the table. And that seems like a pretty straightforward exercise, but it gets complicated sometimes by one basic rule of Chinese hospitality around the table. To show honor to the person next to you, you're meant to try to clink your glass slightly lower than the person across from you. Right? And, and there, if they're going to show deference and honor to you, they're going to try to do the same thing. <laughs> right? And So banquet etiquette calls for trying to take the lowest position possible. So I thought we would, we would try a demonstration this morning, and I need a volunteer who, who has quick access Weston, can you help me out? You're up here. Come on up here. Can you help me? You can come right here, okay? So imagine you're at one of these feasts, okay? And you have your glass and I have mine. Now if I'm feeling kind of important about myself, I might come in and try to clink my glass way up here, right? And if you're feeling important, go ahead and try the same thing, right? Yeah, that's kind of the proud position. But if if two people end up in a situation where they want to honor the other, all right, we're going to try and go in, and I want you to try and keep your glass lower than mine, and I'm going to try and do the same thing. Okay. Oh. All right, he beat me. We'll do it one more time. Okay, see if I can get you this time. Ready? Go. Oh. He knows the trick. All right. Do you want to drink the water or not? You can leave it if you want. No, you don't trust me. All right. Keep this going through the sermon. You can see how this works out sometimes, right? There's this kind of dance that takes place. Now, that, that gesture is a pretty simple one. But as we continue to think about the life of our community together this morning, I want to suggest that it's an image, it's a dance, it's a, a pattern that we might do well to imitate. Not so much at banquets or church potlucks downstairs, not so much the toasting part of it, but in the way we, we do everything else in community together. Right, to, to make that idea of going lower our mindset. What would it look like to be constantly in the habit as, as a community as an, and as a church of, of elevating the persons next to us? Uh, of lifting them up, of making sure they are honored and esteemed and loved. And to do that by lowering our own position, our own claim, our own privilege. What would it look like as we serve together, as we disagree with one another about important things, as we experience both success and failure as a community and as a church? What would it mean to to live out of the habit of, of lifting the other up, ...and lowering ourselves. And to do that not just as a a formal practice... ...but really to understand that that's part of our identity. It's part of our mindset as a community. This morning, as we turn to Philippians chapter 2... ...Paul wants to tell us that, that this is to be part of how we live out... ...our relationships with one another because it is the mindset, it is the attitude of Jesus Christ, who is the center, who is the foundation of our life together. So let's turn to Philippians 2. We'll pick up in verse 5 today. Let me pray for us as we hear the word of God to us. Lord, there are a few words to describe what you have done, the kind of Lord and King you are. We try to sing about it. We try to meditate upon it. But Lord, I pray that today as we're gathered as one people in and under your name, we might have eyes to see, ears to hear who you are, what you have done and continue to do and that we might live Out that salvation that you've provided together. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Jesus, who is Lord and King, we pray. Amen. As we start into our passage this morning, we're picking up ...what is one of the most brilliant and poetic parts of the entire New Testament. Starting in Philippians 2, 6... ...scholars will sometimes refer refer to these next several verses as the Christ hymn... ...or the Christ song. And that's because the, the language here is decidedly poetic... Some scholars even believe that this may have been a hymn... Or, ...or something used in the liturgy and worship of the earliest Christian church. So that, that these might not even be Paul's own words. He may be borrowing these from, from the worshiping life of the church in Jerusalem... ...or Antioch or somewhere else. And, and the content that's communicated here... ...Paul says captures the mindset of Jesus Christ... And then provides us with a pattern for the way we relate and live with one another as a result. Look at verses 5 through 8 to start out. Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used... ...to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself... ...nothing by taking... ...the very nature of a servant... ...being made in human likeness. And being found... ...in appearance as a man... ...he humbled himself... ...by becoming obedient to death... ...even death... ...on a cross. Paul starts in verse 5... ...with this invitation to the Philippians, and then to us more broadly as, as the church, to examine the nature of our relationships with each other. It wants us to reflect on, on the quality and content and, and kind of the core identity that's beneath those relationships. And I think there's one story that runs in the background of every human relationship that's so familiar to us that Paul doesn't even bother mentioning it here in the text. It's center stage in every dimension of our lives, whether it's politics or the workplace or our marriages or our families. Whatever situation you put us in as people, we are very nearly always looking for the pathway up, a way to to get at what is ours. A way to ensure we are protected, (coughs) provided for. Even in the most mundane situations, this tends to dictate the way we respond. And and we're pretty good, right, most of the time at concealing or covering this up, but then there are little things that happen that, that cause this tendency to reveal itself in us. A couple weeks ago, I was waiting in line at Smug's to rent some skis at the counter there. And we were kind of in this messy line, you know, that was joining together to go to the front of the counter. It was busy. And right as the lines joined, clearly we were in the front place, but someone sort of deftly maneuvered and stepped right in front of us as we were waiting. And in the grand scheme of things, their, their little maneuver probably cost me, what, 30 seconds of extra waiting before I got to the counter. But for the next, like, five or ten minutes, internally, I was just reviewing, how could they do that? <laughs> right? Who are they? Who do they think they are? Right? I wasn't saying anything, but I was, I was fuming inside. Right? I wanted to move up in that line, not back in the line. Right? I, I wanted, at the very least, to have the position I was entitled to. Now, the, Scriptures would trace that impulse, that desire to move up rather than down all the way back into the early chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis 3. And we read of Adam and Eve having been created in the image of God himself, gifted and blessed with this incredible new home in Eden. They have everything they could possibly want and nevertheless they are ...tempted by the serpent. Tempted to move themselves up. And the serpent suggests to them... ...you don't want to just merely bear the image... ...be made in the image of God. You could be gods yourselves. You could move up and, and take a higher position in Eden... Now, ironically, the the story of that upward striving and ambition is what we now have come to call the fall. The upward ambition results in the destruction, in the denigration of community and humanity itself. That that desire and human ambition, we know, leads to nowhere good. But here in verse 5... Paul is speaking to a new kind of community. A community called in and around the person of Jesus Christ. And he says there is, a, there is a different mindset, there is a different story, there is a different pattern available to you as a community and you must live from that storyline, from that place. He says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus, And we see beginning in verse 6 that that's a mindset that chooses to move down instead of up. That even prefers that position. Look at where Jesus begins in verse 6. You've got your text, your Bible out. You can follow along 6 through 8. Jesus, it says, begins in the highest place. Jesus is, is beginning in the realm of, of the heavenlies... ...in equality with God himself. He has all status, all glory, all power available to him. But verse 6 says that Jesus did not see that status... ...as something to be used for his own advantage. And the Greek... uh, ...the verb in in the Greek in verse 6 is harpazo. It's from the, the verb harpazo, which literally means to grab at, to to take something away by force. It can even uh, be translated to mean robbery of a certain kind. Paul says, Jesus has all this available to him, but he will not grasp at it. He will not take it. He will not use it to his own advantage. Unlike Adam and Eve, he is not interested in grasping what is not his. He's not even... ...interested in in holding on to that which is rightfully his... ...as one made equal with God... ...who is God himself. In fact, quite the opposite. Verse 7 says... ...this same Jesus made himself nothing. Literally, he he emptied himself. And instead, he chose to take the place of a servant and a slave... So if the passage this morning is primarily about the mindset of Jesus, what is the mindset we are to have? Well, first of all, Paul says, Jesus is someone who sets aside, he lets go of, he refuses to grasp at glory and ambition, and instead he picks up the role of servitude. Jesus moves down to the place where we are, and in fact, Jesus goes even beneath that place in order to serve us. But as Jesus takes that place of the servant, we're told that the downward ambition of Jesus continues to work itself out. Having taken on flesh, taken on human form, taken on the role of the servant, Jesus then submits himself even further to the thing as human beings we fear and dread most. Jesus submits himself into and under the curse of death. Verse 8 says Jesus does this as an act of obedience. As an act of love. There is no advantage in it for him. But if that wasn't enough, there's there's one more extension, one one more step into the descent of Jesus described in verse 8. We're told in obedience, Jesus not only submits himself to death, but he gets... The kind of death the Romans like to call the slaves punishment. He gets death by the cross. Death by crucifixion. How do we begin to measure the distance between verse 6 and verse 8? How do you measure the distance from equality with God down into humanity? Down into servitude? Down into death? down into death on a cross. Humiliation. And every one of those steps, Paul says, is taken and chosen freely. It's an act of Jesus' obedience. It's an act of love. This is the mindset of Christ Jesus. The Christ-minded way. ...doesn't always appear like a path or a way or a story we seek to imitate or would desire. The way of the cross looks a lot like losing. Think about when I am in an argument... ...when when my own position or idea or privilege is is somehow come up against. It's difficult for me to, to give even an inch of ground... ...to someone I'm in a struggle with. Right? When, when we have an opponent on a, a political issue... ...or when we get in an argument with our spouses or our children... Right, ...it's hard to even extend an ounce of charity to the other side. But Paul says this is the way of Christ. This is the mind of Christ... And even though it looks like losing, even though it looks like weakness to you, beginning in verse 9, Paul wants to see where this leads. Paul wants to show us the ultimate outcomes of the Christ mind. What happens when we follow the way of the cross? What we see is that God has chosen this particular way to vindicate with special ...glory and power and honor. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, because Jesus did not count... ...did not grasp at equality with God for his own advantage... ...therefore God exalted him to the highest place... ...and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow... ...in heaven and on and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge... ...that Jesus Christ is Lord... ...to the glory of God the Father. Talk about a, a turnaround, a change. Right? We, we've had this incredible humbling... ...this incredible humiliation... ...that, that culminates in Jesus' death on the cross... And then beginning in verse 9, Jesus moves from the cross to a coronation ceremony. It's been a while since the Western world has witnessed a coronation up close. The last time England crowned a monarch was in 1953 with uh, Elizabeth's ascension to the throne. And on her coronation day... I wasn't alive then, many of us weren't alive, but maybe you saw that on television, maybe you've seen photos or images, you'll know that she she rode to Westminster Abbey in a royal carriage, there was this incredible procession, thousands of people outside, and she entered the church beautifully adorned, she had jewels, she had a dress that was so exquisite that it took ten other women to help her carry it forward to the altar, to the front of the church. But after she arrived there at the front of the church, she took a series of oaths... ...pledges of loyalty to her country and to the church itself. She was then moved into a private canopy. She was moved away from the the eyes of the crowd. And there were no cameras or crowds allowed into this, this special tent. And once inside, she was asked to remove her jewels... To remove the the outer garments of her dress. And she stood in the canopy in a simple linen garment. One that's been used by kings for a thousand years. And she, standing there in, in humility, without any sign of wealth or power or prestige, she was anointed with the sign of the cross by the archbishop. And then she was blessed to rule her people in the power and strength of the kingdom of Jesus. And it was only from that that place of of lowering herself, of hiding herself in, in the intimacy and in the weakness and the humility before the cross. That had to happen first before Elizabeth was then given robes of royalty given her scepter and finally given the crown that was placed upon her head that day we've seen Jesus in in the the first few verses here 6, 7 and 8 laying down his garments of power laying down glory to serve us but now in verses 9, 10 and 11 it's the father's turn to step in ...and to flip things. We're told that the Father sees what the Son has done... ...and He takes the crucified and humiliated body of Jesus... ...and He begins to exalt... ...begins to lift Him from that lowest place. And He restores the Son... ...to His rightful place in reality. The Father puts a crown... ...on the head of Jesus. He puts the kingdoms of the earth... ...under his feet. The humiliated Jesus... ...is now the resurrected... ...and exalted Jesus. And I think one of the things... ...that's so beautiful about this... ...part of the Christ hymn... ...is not just... ...the exaltation of Jesus... ...but what it reveals about the kind of community... ...that exists within the being... ...of God himself... God in three persons, the community of the Trinity. Especially in these verses, the community that exists between the Father and the Son. there's, There's this sense of a mutual trust, a mutual honoring, a mutual love that seeks the other's glory. We're told that the Son delights to obey the Father, He does this out of obedience. And the Father delights in glorifying and exalting the Son. It's like those glasses we started out with, right? One trying to exalt, one trying to honor, one trying to dignify the other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Looking for a way to bless and to glorify within the Trinity. This is the mindset of the triune God. And I think it's because of the depth of that community that Jesus can risk ultimate humiliation. Jesus can step out and serve in a way that no other human being has ever served because he knows his identity. He knows he is the beloved Son of the Father. Nothing can take that from Jesus. He knows, even as he pours himself out, that he feels the Father's pleasure in what he's doing. I wonder what it would be like for us to have that that kind of depth of identity. That kind of trust. That kind of mutual honoring that that enables us to risk serving one another. Serving in, in difficult ways beyond the walls of the church. Finally, we see that as Jesus is lifted up by the Father... ...all creation... All the world gets drawn into the community of worship that exists within God Himself. Right? Ambition is abolished. Knees are bowed. Every tongue begins to confess. They join the, the community of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit saying the crucified, the humiliated one, Jesus the Christ, He is Lord. He is the true King of reality. And there's there's real freedom then as as creation enters into that admission. There's freedom in knowing our place as subjects of a king who loves us, who has served us, who has died for us. We can have his mindset then, to keep going lower. Keep taking the risk of living the way Jesus does in community. I think that's what Paul commends to us in verses 12 and 13. I want to close with these these verses this morning. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act. ...in order to fulfill his good purpose. Verse 12 marks another transition with the word therefore. We had therefore back in in verse 9... ...signaling the the beginning of this transition of Christ's exaltation. Now in verse 12 we get a therefore... ...which which tells us that the mindset, the picture... the, ...the work of Jesus we have just seen... ...is now meant to be turned back toward us... ...toward the community, toward the church of Jesus... And Paul, with application in mind, says... ...get to work. Start living out of this mind together. So often when I've read these few verses... ...and seen that phrase, work out your salvation... ...it's kind of a puzzling phrase. I've read those words at an individual... ...at a personal level... ...and wondered, well, what does this mean? How do I work out my salvation... Is this some kind of internal reflection that Paul's talking about? Is there something I have to do, something I have to contribute here? Isn't salvation a gift of grace from God? How does work fit into salvation? Well, One of the key things I think I've failed to notice in these two verses is who Paul's speaking to here. The pronouns in verses 12 and 13 are not ...singular. In every case they are the you plural. So Paul is not saying... ...Dave, go figure out how to to work out your salvation on your own. He's saying you. All of you. Everyone that is part of the church of Jesus Christ. Everyone that's part of this community in Philippi. Work out your salvation together. With all the power of Jesus that's, that's been supplied to you in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation as Lord of heaven and earth. Now live and serve and obey him in your relationships with each other. We're working out. God is sowing is his salvation into us as a people when we begin to live from that mindset, that way of Jesus Christ with each other. Finally here in verse 13 Paul says do it with fear and trembling because of your awareness that it is God working in you. And again the you there is plural meaning the church. Meaning that God is working in you and in you and in you and in you. God is working to make us a living Body, A living image of Jesus. A living example of the mind of Jesus Christ. Each one of us are the people Jesus has emptied himself to save. And when we realize that... Gordon Fee says it should fill us with fear and trembling. It should fill us with a holy awe and wonder... That we are the people God is working out his salvation among. Right here this morning, right next to, the, to you, wherever you're sitting, the, the grumpy, the sleepy, the person that's sitting too close because we're all smashed into one service now. God is working among you in that person. God is right there doing something. We ought to be fearfully amazed. And there is no clear symbol of who Jesus is, no clear sign of the lordship of Jesus Christ, no clear call to be a community of Christ-minded people than the one we get to celebrate together this morning at the table of his kingship.